Welcome back to another Daily C.S. Lewis reading. I apologize for the absence as we were celebrating, well, we were supposed to be celebrating Sukkot, and instead I was pretty much uh, sick the entire time with some of my chronic illness. But here we are. Let's read our C.S. Lewis daily, and then we'll read a short passage from Kazuki Tomori about the theology of the pain of God. We're continuing our reading from C.S. Lewis's essay on why he is not a pacifist. Of course, with respect, we give respect to our pacifist brethren, who have many good arguments based on scripture. I have utmost respect, especially um, for one of my favorite pacifists, the young medic, at um, who fought who didn't fight, <laughs> but saved many, many lives in Japan during World War II. Um, he was an American, and his name escapes me now, but I'm sure that you can find him online if you Google. There was a recent film about him, Google Pacifist Medic, um, World War II. <laughs> that wars do no good is then so far from being a fact that it hardly ranks as a historical opinion. Nor is the matter mended by saying modern wars. How are we to decide whether the total effect would have been better or worse if Germany had, if Europe had submitted to Germany in 1914? It is, of course, true that wars never do half the good which the leaders of the belligerents say they are going to do. And nothing ever does half the good. Perhaps nothing ever does half the evil which is expected of it. And that may be a sound argument for not pitching one's propaganda too high. But it is no argument against war. If a Germanized Europe in 1914 would have been an evil, then the war which prevented that evil was, so far, justified. To call it useless because it did not also cure slums and unemployment is like coming up to a man who has just succeeded in defending himself from a man-eating tiger and saying, It's no good, old chap. This hasn't really cured your rheumatism. <laughs> On the test of fact, then, I find the pacifist position weak. It seems to me that history is full of useful wars as well as of useless wars. If all that can be brought against the frequent appearance of utility is mere speculation about what would have happened, I am not converted. I turn next to the intuition. There is no question of discussion once we have found it. There is only the danger of mistaking for an intuition something which is really a conclusion, and therefore needs argument. We want something which no good man has ever disputed. We are in search of platitude. The relevant intuition seems to be that love is good and hatred bad, or that helping is good and harming bad. We next have to consider whether reasoning leads us from this intuition to the pacifist conclusion or not. And the first thing I notice is that intuition can lead to no action until it is limited in some way or other. You cannot do simply good to simply man. You must do this or that good to this or that man. And if you do this good, you can't at the same time do that. And if you do it to these men, you can't also do it to those. Hence, from the outset, the law of beneficence involves not doing good, some good to some men at some times. You understand he's saying we're not... We're not infinite, so we have to do one thing at a time. <laughs> Hence, those rules which so far, as I know, have never been doubted, as that we should help one we have promised to help rather than another, or a benefactor rather than one who has no special claims on us, or a compatriot more than a stranger, or a kinsman more than a mere compatriot. And this, in fact, most often means helping A at the expense of B, who drowns while you pull A on board. 
and sooner or later it involves helping A by actually doing some degree of violence to B. But when B is up to mischief against A, you must either do no... You must either do that. My page is stuck. You must either do nothing which disobeys the intuition, or you must help one against another. And certainly no one's conscience tells him to help B, the guilty. It remains, therefore, to help A. So far, I suppose we all agree. If the argument is not to end in an anti-pacifist conclusion, one or other of the two stopping places must be selected. You must either say that violence to be is lawful only if it stops short of killing, or that killing of individuals is indeed lawful, but the mass killing of a war is not. As regards the first, I admit the general proposition that the lesser violence done to be is always preferable to the greater, provided that it is equally efficient in restraining him and equally good for everyone concerned, including B, whose claim is inferior to all the other claims involved, but not non-existent. But I do not therefore conclude that to kill B is always wrong. But, um, for instance, in, in some instances, for instance in a small isolated community, death may be the only efficient method of restraint. In any community, its effect on the population, not simply as a deterrent through fear, but also as an expression of the moral importance of certain crimes, may be valuable. And as far as for B himself, I think a bad man is at least as likely to make a good end in the execution shed some weeks after the crime as in the prison hospital twenty years later. I'm not producing arguments to show that capital punishment is certainly right. I'm only maintaining that it is not certainly wrong. It is a matter on which good men may legitimately differ. As regards the second, the position seems to be much clearer. It is arguable that a criminal can always be satisfactorily dealt with without the death penalty. It is certain that a whole nation cannot be prevented from taking what it wants except by war. It is almost equally certain that the absorption of certain societies by certain other societies is a great evil. The doctrine that war is always a greater evil seems to imply a materialist ethic, a belief that death and pain are the greatest evils. But I do not think they are. I think the suppression of a higher religion by a lower, or even a higher secular culture by a lower, a much greater evil. Nor am I greatly moved by the fact that there are many of the individuals we strike down in war are innocent. This that seems a way to make war worse. Not but what but but I don't understand this sentence. Hold on. Nor am I greatly moved by the fact that many of the individuals we strike down in war are innocent. Oh my. That seems, in a way, to make war not worse but better. All men die, and most men miserably. That two soldiers on opposite sides, each believing his own country to be in the right, each at the moment when his selfish, selfishness is most in abeyance, and his will to sacrifice in the ascendance, should kill other in plain battle, seems to me by no means one of the most terrible things in this very terrible world. Of course, one of them, at least, must be mistaken, and of course war is a very great evil. But that is not the question. The question is whether war is the greatest evil in the world, so that any state of affairs which might result from submission is certainly preferable. And I do not see any really cogent arguments for that view. Another attempt to get a pacifist conclusion from the intuition is of a more political and calculating kind. If not the greatest evil, yet war is a great evil. Therefore we should all like to remove it if we can. But every war leads to another war. The removal of war must therefore be attempted. We must increase by propaganda the number of pacifists in each nation until it becomes great enough to deter that nation from going to war. This seems to me wild work. Only liberal societies tolerate pacifists. In the liberal society, the number of pacifists will either be large enough to cripple the state as a belligerent or not. 
If not, you have done nothing. If it is large enough, then you have handed over the state which does tol tolerate pacifists to its totalitarian neighbor who does not. Pacifism of this kind is taking the straight road to a world in which there will be no pacifists. It may be asked whether, faint as the hope is of abolishing war by pacifism, there is any other hope. But the question belongs to a mode of thought which I find quite alien to me. It consists in assuming that the great permanent miseries in human life must be curable, if only we can find the right cure, and it then proceeds by elimination and concludes that whatever is left, however unlikely to prove a cure, it then proceeds by elimination and concludes that whatever it is, is left, however unlikely to prove a cure, must nevertheless do so. Hence the fanaticism of Marxists, Freudians, eugenicists, spiritualists, Douglasites, federal unionists, vegetarians, and all the rest. But I have received no assurance that anything we can do will eradicate suffering. I think the best results are obtained by people who work quietly away at limited objectives such as the abolition of the slave trade, or prison reform, or factory acts, or tuberculosis, not by those who think they can achieve universal justice, or health, or peace. I think the art of life consists in attacking each immediate evil as well as we can. To avert or postpone one particular war by wise policy, or to render one particular campaign shorter by strength and skill, or less terrible by mercy to the conquered and the civilians, is more useful than all the proposals for universal peace that have ever been made. Just as the dentist who can stop one toothache has deserved better of humanity than all the men who think they have some scheme for producing a perfectly healthy race. I do not, therefore, find any very clear and cogent reason for interfering from the general principle of beneficence, the conclusion that I must disobey if I am called on by a lawful authority to be a soldier. I turn next to consider authority. Authority is either special or general, and again, either human or divine. The special human authority which rests on me in this matter is that of society to which I belong. That society, by its declaration of war, has decided that war has decided the issue against pacifism in this particular instance, and by its institutions and practice for centuries has decided against pacifism in general. If I am a pacifist, I have Arthur and Alfred, Elizabeth and Cromwell, Walpole and Burke against me. I have my university, my school, and my parents against me. I have the literature of my country against me and cannot even open my Beowulf, my Shakespeare, my Johnson, or my Wordsworth without being reproved. Now, of course, this authority of England is not final. But there is a difference between conclusive authority and an authority of no weight at all. Men may differ as to the weight they would give the almost unanimous authority of England. I am not here concerned with assessing it, but merely with noting that whatever weight it has is against pacifism. And, of course, my duty to take that authority into account is increased by the fact that I am indebted to that society for my birth and my upbringing for the education which has allowed me to become a pacifist and the tolerant laws which allow me to remain one. So much for special human authority. The sentence of general human authority is equally clear. From the dawn of history down to the sinking of the Terrace Bay, the world echoes with the praise of righteous war. To be a pacifist, I must part company with Homer and Virgil, with Plato and Aristotle, with Zarathustra and the Bhagavad Gita, with Cicero and Montaigne, with Iceland and with Egypt. From this point of view, I am almost tempted to reply to the pacifist as Johnson replied to Goldsmith, Nay, sir, if you will not take the universal opinion of mankind, I have no more to say. I am aware that, Though Hooker thought the general and perpetual voice of men is as the sentence of God himself, yet many who hear will give it little or no weight. 
This disregard of human authority may have two roots, and may spring from the belief that human history is a simple, unilinear movement from worse to better, which is called a belief in progress, so that any given generation is always, in all respects, wiser than all previous generations. To those who believe thus, our ancestors are superseded, and there seems nothing improbable in the claim that the whole world was wrong until the day before yesterday and now has suddenly become right. With such people, I confess, I cannot argue, for I do not share their basic assumption. Believers in progress rightly note that in the world of machines, the new model supersedes the old. From this, they falsely infer a similar kind of supersession in such things as virtue and wisdom. But human authority may be discounted on a quite different ground. It may be held, at least by a Christian pacifist, that the human race is fallen and corrupt, so that even the consent of great and wise human teachers and great nations widely separated in time and place affords no clue whatsoever to the good. If this contention is being made, we must then turn to our next head, that of divine authority. I shall consider divine authority only in terms of Christianity. Of the other civilized religions, I believe that only one, Buddhism, is genuinely pacifist. And anyway, I'm not well enough informed about them as to discuss them with profit. And when we turn to Christianity, we find pacifism based almost exclusively on certain of the sayings of our Lord himself. If those sayings do not establish the pacifist position, it is vain to try to base it on the general secures judicat of Christendom as a whole. For when I seek guidance there, I find authority on the whole against me. Looking on this statement, which is my immediate authority as an Anglican, the 39 Articles, I find it laid down in black and white that it is lawful for Christian men in the commandant of the magistrate to wear weapons and serve in wars. Dissenters may not accept this. I, then I can refer them to the history of the Presbyterians, which is by no mean pacifist. Papists may not accept this. Then I can refer them to the ruling of Thomas Aquinas, that even as princes lawfully defend their land by the sword against disturbers from within, so it belongs to them to defend it by the sword from enemies without. Or if you demand patristic authority, I give you St. Augustine. If Christian discipleship wholly reprobated war, then to those who sought the counsel of salvation in the gospel, this answer would have been given first, that they should throw away their arms and withdraw themselves altogether from being soldiers. But what was really said to them was, Do violence to no man and be content with your pay. When he bade them to be content with their due soldiers' pay, he forbade them not to be paid a soldier. He, he did not forbid. He forbade them not to be paid as soldiers. Ah, that's an important part. Point. Well, we shall have to pause here, so because we have taken all of our time, we will continue in this very interesting and perhaps controversial essay of Lewis's tomorrow. Have a wonderful day, and as always, this episode is sponsored by Prometheus Studies by Jen Finelli, which you can find at any bookstore online. Search Prometheus Studies, Finding God in Tarantulas, Palopolis, and Mario. Goodbye.